Dear Heavenly Merciful Father, Lord, once again we thank you for this beautiful day. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you and worship. And Lord, we thank you for these bodies that you've given us, and we just ask you to please send your Holy Spirit to guide us to better health, to biblical principles for caring for our bodies, not just to live longer, but to live better and to draw closer to you and to also bring glory to your name. Lord, as we open your Bible tonight, we ask you to please send your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds, draw us into your truths, help us to learn more about you and to live more like you. Lord, we ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So, last message, we talked about the United States and Bible prophecy. Was that an exciting message? You learned something new? We discovered that the U.S. was foretold in the Bible in prophecy. Its rise and its ultimate role in end-time events, we discovered. We learned that this second beast, this earth kingdom, was going to rise from the wilderness. And then it would adopt Christ-like characteristics. But then somewhere down the line, it would begin to join with the sea beast and eventually enforce the mark of the beast. Learn that from the Bible. Now remember, please, I hope you did not leave here that night thinking I was beating up the United States. I love this country very much. Tremendous gift of liberty that we have. My family has been here since the 1600s. So... It was, it's, I'm just here to preach the truth. God's truth. I love this country, but I love the Lord much more. There was a man in Cavendish, Vermont. He'd been called, he has been called neuroscience's most famous patient. He was a 25-year-old real-world construction worker. His name was Phineas Gage. Phineas Gage went to work on his job at a, at a real railway construction Site. He was the foreman. And one day in September of 1843, before the day was over, he'd no longer be himself. Let me explain. He was in charge of blasting mountains near Cavendish, Vermont. Someone had forgotten to cover the gunpowder with sand. And when Phineas pushed a tamping iron into the hole filled with gunpowder, a spark was created that created an explosion which sent a three-foot-long and one-inch-thick metal bar hurtling towards Phineas Gage. It hit just under his left cheekbone, went through his head behind his eye, came out the top of his head behind his hairline. In fact, it kept on going and it landed 80 feet beyond him. Now, you'd think he'd have been killed, right? But he wasn't. He survived actually making a full recovery, except for losing his sight in one eye. And as I told you guys the other night, I can appreciate that. Before the accident, he was a model husband, a model father, a regular churchgoer. But afterwards, he lost his job. He abandoned his family and went off and joined a traveling circus. You see, the accident had damaged his frontal lobe. And it affected his attitudes and his personality. After he died, the doctors asked his family for permission to exhume his body. And they studied Phineas's skull and the tamping iron. They're still on display today in the Warren Anatomical Museum at Harvard University. You can see them today. 
say, well, okay, Dan, but what does this have to do with the Bible and Bible prophecy? Well, remember, almost every night I've talked about it, we're involved in a spiritual battle, amen? A battle for our minds and our hearts. This spiritual battle is going to determine who receives the worship of the world, and it will come to a head over the seal of God or the mark of the beast. Turn me to Revelation chapter 14. Page 1184. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God doesn't sound very good, does it? Turn to Revelation chapter 13. Just back one chapter. Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. He calls us all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Notice this forehead thing that I mentioned the other night when we talked about the mark of the beast. Right behind your forehead is your brain, and the part of your brain immediately behind your forehead is the frontal lobe. That part that Phineas Gage got damaged when that rod went through his head. You can call it your mind. This is where our decision-making powers reside. Down in the close of time, the saved are those whose minds are given to Jesus, while the unsaved will not have given their minds to Jesus. How can you have every advantage in this battle for your mind. How many people have heard the saying, healthy body, healthy mind? Absolutely. In fact, this is a biblical principle. In fact, God himself gives us a case study with prophetic implications. And that's the story of Daniel. See, Daniel was taken captive from his home in Jerusalem. He was taken to Babylon. And we see early, early on in the book of Daniel that Daniel refuses to eat the food offered to him by the king. That was a very dangerous decision. The king could have had him killed on the spot. Daniel wanted to eat a healthful diet. And it was found that when they compared him and his friend's diet to the other's diet, They were ten times wiser than all those fellows in Babylon. Praise the Lord, amen? You see, they kept their bodies for God, and God was able to bless their minds, not just intellectually, but spiritually. And the king was so impressed that he promoted Daniel and his friends to positions of importance in Babylon. Now, I want you to think about this. These are captives, (laughs) Hebrew captives, and they're put in positions of power in Babylon because they kept their minds and their bodies sharp. Daniel was used by God to share some of the most profound communications ever received by human beings. We're studying him here in the middle of a five-week series, amen? Daniel was used by God to reveal himself to the whole world, present and future. So you ask yourself, do our lifestyle choices really make a difference at the end of time? Does it really matter? 
mean, the world's falling apart. People are killing each other left and right. We've talked about that in multiple nights, right? Does what I eat matter? Does what I put in my body matter? Does God have a plan of physical, mental, and spiritual survival? It's especially for the end of time. Or, which some people like to think, is God some spiritual celestial dictator who simply points his finger at you when your time is up? I see some people kind of cringing. People think that. There's people in Christian church who think that. Is health a matter of chance or choice? My friends, our choices can add or subtract years from our life. And I'm convinced that the devil is anxious to destroy our health while God is anxious to build it up. Battle. Spiritual battle. That's why more than ever our theme is important. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. In this battle, we need to know what God's instructions are for the preparation for us to withstand this battle. God gives us the roadmap, gives us the guidelines, gives us the instructions. But we got to go look for them. You see, my friends, the book of Revelation presents two opponents in this titanic struggle between good and evil. Satan the destroyer and Jesus the restorer. Satan is out to take our freedom away by leading us into bondage. He does this by enslaving us to destructive physical habits such as smoking, drinking alcohol, eating the wrong food. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Page 1182. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan, who deceives how much of the world? The whole world. My friends, one of Satan's ways of controlling human beings is to deceive them that certain lifestyle practices give you freedom. When actuality, it leads you into bondage. It leads you into addiction. You see, Satan deceives millions to think that the body doesn't matter as long as the heart is right with God. Satan has fooled humans into thinking they can do whatever they want with their bodies. The way we care for our bodies on earth reveals how we would care for them through all eternity. You see, the body is a temple for the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Turn me to 3 John, verse 2. Page 1172. Way in the back of the Bible. Before the book of Revelation. Third John. No chapters. Verse 2. John writes, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. A blessing on our health. Some people say, well, it really doesn't matter what you drink. 
It really doesn't matter if you eat what you eat or if you smoke. Those things don't matter, Dan. But my friends, the Bible teaches that we are whole persons. And the Bible is also very clear that God wants to save us wholly, completely, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. He wants to save the whole being. In fact, God's last day message in the book of Revelation tells us, back in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, it says, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Remember, the hour of his judgment has come. We're in the hour of his judgment. We're in the last hours of earth's history. And in those last hours, God is calling us to give glory to him, to worship him, the creator. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, you get all kinds of answers to that question, right? Well, I'm going to go to church, I sing these really great songs, great prayers, I read the Bible. My friends, those all count. Those, yeah, absolutely. What does the Bible tell us about how to glorify God? Let's look at how the Apostle Paul answers this question. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, page 1102. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. The Apostle Paul, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I want you to notice, notice that Paul says, Glorify God, and then he tells you how. And notice he includes our bodies. The Bible calls us to glorify God in our physical bodies. And he tells us that we were bought at a price. My friends, the price was the precious blood of Jesus. A high price, the highest price. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Page 1106. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. The Apostle Paul continues, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How much of what we do? Whatever. Whatever you do. You see, my friends, we glorify God or we dishonor God in the way we treat our bodies. And if we live in harmony with his health laws, then we glorify him. See, God is calling for a people who are completely committed to him. Not just the things they like. I talk about this in other sermons that I've preached here in the church and in other places. A lot of people want buffet Christian, Christianity. Oh, I'll take the things I like. And I like. Oh, I don't want the Brussels sprouts. Oh, you know that... Ten Commandment thing. I like some of those, but some of those, you know, you're cutting in on my football game on that Sabbath thing. We laugh, but a lot of Christians are like that, aren't they? Man, I love the Bible. Ooh, I don't like that chapter. <laughs> That's true. My friends, God is calling for people to totally commit to him, to totally submit to him. And he's looking for a people that are dedicated to him Mentally, physically, and spiritually. Total commitment. 
There are some lifestyle practices which destroy our bodies. Oh, here, you go. here he comes. My friends, this isn't, my, this isn't for me. It's going to be from the Bible. The scientific evidence indicates that smoking is one of the world's most deadly killers. Now, there was a time when we might not have known that. But don't pretend that we don't know that now. There's a doctor named Linus Pauling, one of the few scientists ever to win two Nobel Prizes. He's quoted as saying, every cigarette you smoke takes 14 and a half minutes off of your life. It's not every pack, not every carton. This is every cigarette. My friends, that's staggering. In other words, smoking is committing slow suicide. You see, my friends, I enjoy life far too much to smoke 30 cigarettes a day and take off 450 minutes of my life each day. There's some researchers in the UK said smoking is the single biggest cause of cancer in the world. In the UK, smoking kills five times more people than car accidents, overdoses, murder, suicide, and HIV all put together. Five times more. There's studies from Europe, Japan, North America have shown that nine in ten lung cancers are caused by the chemicals found in tobacco smoke. Smokers have a 25% higher risk of heart attack than non-smokers. Nicotine causes our arteries to shrink. If your arteries shrink, what happens? Your blood flow restricts because the openings are more narrow. When arteries get smaller and smaller, clots get caught in the blood vessel. And that can lead to stroke or heart attack. Secondhand smoke is a real problem. If you have children in the home, it even affects them. They'll have more colds. In fact, new studies on children of smokers show that they have a higher cancer risk due to secondhand smoke. Do you really want to pollute the atmosphere surrounding your children or your grandchildren? But my friends, the good news is that the power of God will enable you to quit. The grace of God, by the grace of God, you can be free. You can present your body as a living sacrifice. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3, page 1177. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. What a promise, amen? And he tells us that he will give us the power and the strength and the grace to overcome. He doesn't say, okay, you get to come and sit on my throne, but you got to do a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm not going to tell you what those things are, and you're on your own. That's not what he says at all. He says, if you overcome, you get to sit on my throne, and I'm going to give you the power and the forgiveness and the mercy I'm going to give you the whole, everything you need. And then I'm going to give you the reward. My friends, I want you to try to convince me that there's a better deal than that. Anywhere. (laughs) Because you can't. The book of Revelation declares, those who enter the gates of heaven 
will not be defiling their bodies. The Word of God tells us that those who glorify God will glorify all of His creation, including our bodies. Quitters always win. By the grace of God, you can win. In fact, the good news is quitters will find a reversal of many of the unpleasant effects of tobacco. They can dramatically reduce the risk of heart disease. They can dramatically reduce the risk of cancer. My friends, by the grace of God, you can win. You can say, I am no longer a slave to tobacco. Or I'm no longer a slave to any other addiction. You should want to say, I want to be a servant to Jesus Christ. I want to be a child of the King. And if you say that, He will come into your life and He will grant you the power over these habits. You just have to ask Him. Turn to Romans chapter 5, page 1089. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. See, my friends, the Apostle Paul says that where there's sin, the Lord pours out more grace. It's not the opposite. A lot of people think, well, the the worse I am, God's going to constrict the hose. It's the opposite. He pours out more grace, more mercy. No matter how strong tobacco is, my friends, Jesus Christ is much stronger. No matter how strong nicotine is, Jesus Christ is much stronger. My friends, Jesus can help to overcome anything. Anything. Jesus is stronger than any enslaving physical habit. And when we present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice, Jesus will come into our lives. When we turn over our entire lives, he will bring victory over our bad habits. He will bring victory over our worldly lifestyles. And most of all, he will help us to transform ourselves into his image. When Jesus walked on this earth, he healed, amen? The Bible's full of those miracles. It wasn't just for good reading. It was not only to help those dear souls, but it was a lesson It was a lesson to all people that if you come to him and you ask him, he will heal. And he offers to come into our lives with the same power. In fact, Jesus makes a personal promise to you tonight. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, page 940. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus himself is speaking, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. My friends, this is one of the greatest promises in the entire Bible. God says that all you need to do is ask. Ask. The Bible says if you need God's power, ask. Just ask. 
He continues, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. You see, in this text, Jesus was speaking about all of the spiritual power in the entire universe. He says, if you ask, you will get it all. God promises us spiritual power. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus will deliver us from the slavery of sin. The bondage of sin. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Page 1089. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey. Think about that. I want you to know that Paul, this was not a coincidence that he was using the imagery, the example of slavery. He says, we are slaves to whomever and whatever we obey. Whomever we follow, we're slaves. But Jesus offers us freedom from slavery. We need Jesus. Jesus will free us from the slavery of the devil. My friends, Jesus delivers. Jesus makes us new. He gives us victory over smoking. He'll give us victory over alcohol. He'll give us victory over drugs. Whatever it is. Let's talk about fighting the battle of the bottle. I thought I was just going to talk about cigarettes, right? The point isn't these individual examples. The point is, whatever the struggle is, whatever you face, get on your knees and ask God for help. I know it's a real struggle, but the Lord will deliver you. Some people struggle more than others. But God works miracles for those who trust him. Now, there's a lot of confusion about the effects of alcohol on the body and on the mind. Amen? We often hear, well, you know, a little bit of alcohol is good. Well, I heard a laugh, but that, I can show you studies that say that. I can also show you who paid for those studies. Yeah, the people selling the alcohol. Scientists can look into the eye at the tiny blood vessels that are visible there, and they can determine how many drinks a person has had by how sluggish and clumped together those blood cells are. Drinking alcohol cuts off oxygen supplies to your brain. Brain cells. The human brain, unable to get enough oxygen, those cells will do what? Die. They're destroyed. Now, my friends, let me ask you a question. And I've mentioned this many times. How does the Holy Spirit communicate with us? Does he communicate with you through your fingers and toes? Through the brain. Through our brains. Do you see why the devil brewed alcohol in the laboratories of hell. 
because alcohol destroys brain cells. The human brain is the only place where God can communicate with us through the Holy Spirit. And the devil knows that. That's why Solomon tells us, turn to Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 623. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. And whoever, whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, if you're going to seek counsel on wisdom from any man, it should be the wisest man who's ever lived. Amen? Solomon. Now, ask yourself a question. Why are pilots not allowed to drink any alcohol 24 hours before they fly? Why are medical students told, don't take any drinks before you're going to take your state board exams? Because it affects your judgment. Judgment. Many who experiment with alcohol develop serious drinking problems that end up causing other problems. You'll see they'll have marital problems, work problems, even criminal problems. In fact, alcohol is the most abused drug in the world today. Back in Proverbs, this time in chapter 23. Proverbs, chapter 23, page 628. Verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? What a list. That sounds like a great day, doesn't it? <laughs> I know. Sol Solomon continues. He answers the question himself. Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. The Bible tells us don't even look at it. Because it's going to deceive you. It's going to lure you. We continue. At the last bite, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. So I ask you, why would you want to put something in your body that poisons you like the bite of a venomous snake? That God says there's only one way to deal with alcohol. And that's to give it up completely. Have nothing to do with it. Your eyes will see strange things. And your art will utter perverse things. My friends, the Bible is very clear on alcohol. It will cloud your mind and it will confuse you. Someone says, oh, wait a minute, Dan. You are leaving out that little story about Jesus. Turned a bunch of water into wine. It's funny how people remember those stories, don't they? Yeah. Say, yeah, Jesus turned all that water into wine. That means Jesus said it's okay to drink socially. See, Jesus did it. He made him wine. Well, let's see exactly what Jesus did. Turn to John chapter 2. 
page 1026. John chapter 2, verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Wow. 30. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up. How far? To the brim. To the brim or to the top. So let's be clear. Jesus turned not a little bottle of water into wine, not some cups into a of water into wine. These great big monster pots, right? But what kind of wine? You see, in the Bible, the word wine can mean one of two things. It can mean fermented wine or it can mean the pure juice of the grape, non-alcoholic wine. The only way we're going to know is to study the context of which it's used in the Bible. Remember why I told you to read the context when we're studying the Bible? Verses before, verses after, the entire chapter, sometimes the entire book. Turn to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65, page 722. Isaiah 65, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. You see, this wine, the Bible says, is fresh because it's unfermented wine. It's new juice from the grape. Fermented wine is aged wine, which causes intoxication. The pure, fresh, unfermented juice of the grape is invigorating. In fact, studies know, will tell you that's some of the best fluids to drink for your body. Pure grape juice. When I was in India doing a series similar to this, they, made, they gave me a, a bottle of hand-squeezed grape juice. It was the most incredible grape juice I've ever had in my life. Of course, I made the mistake of telling them that I liked it, and they almost, almost drowned me in it for the next two weeks that I was there. <laughs> It was incredible. And now I'm tasting it now. I can't wait to go back. It was amazing. But what kind of wine did Jesus create? Well, let's look at the measurements of this miracle. The, the wine that he created at this wedding feast was a large amount. Can we agree to that? John says it was enough to fill six stone water jars to the brim. And the apostle tells us how big those are, 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus, at a wedding feast, created 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And my friends, that can make a few people drunk if it's fermented wine. Right? It would have been enough for everyone at that wedding feast to easily get drunk. Do you really think that God, Jesus Christ himself would create fermented wine that intoxicates people? Does that fit the character of Jesus that we've studied for four weeks? Did Jesus create enough fermented wine to get the whole village drunk? Absolutely not. 
You see, the Bible indicates that the wine Jesus made was the pure, fresh juice of the grape. In fact, the master of the feast didn't know Jesus had even turned the water into wine. And when he tasted the juice that Jesus had made, he called the bridegroom. Go back to John chapter 2. Let's go back to the story. John chapter 2, verse 10. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Jesus didn't create fermented, intoxicating, alcoholic wine for people to get drunk. The Bible says he created the good wine. The best wine. What is the good wine? It's a wine that is unfermented. And in fact, our Lord created a wine that was so sweet, so magnificent, it gave them energy. It didn't destroy their brains. My friends, Jesus Christ will never create something that's going to cause people to lose control of their minds. Not for one second. You see, it's the devil who's destroying people's spiritual lives. In fact, the deception wrought via twisting these very texts and the translation of these words comes directly from the father of all lies, Satan himself. God is calling us to keep our minds clear as we prepare for the second coming of Christ. Amen? One of the leading causes of death in alcohol accidents is, I'm sorry, automobile accidents is alcohol. No one gets in a car after drinking and thinks they're going to be killed or thinks they're going to kill someone. They've been deceived by the evil one. There is only one way to be free, and that's to give our bodies over to Jesus. Ask Jesus for the power to overcome. We must turn our lives over to Christ. We must allow him to recreate us, to transform us, to remake us. Best of all, to deliver us. My friends, God promises us abundant health. In fact, in the Old Testament, God made a wonderful promise to Israel. Turn to Exodus chapter 15, page 66. Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do do what is right in his sight. So he's given us, this is like a conditional statement, right? If you do something, if you heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right, give ears to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. God says, I don't want my people to be plagued with the many diseases that come from alcohol, from tobacco, from drugs, from sexual immorality, or harmful diets. God said, I am the Lord that heals you. My friends, God wants us to be in good health. Turn to Psalms chapter 105. Psalms chapter 105, verse 37, page 578. 
Psalm 105, verse 37. He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. What kind of health were they in? Nobody was feeble. When the Israelites followed God's plan of health, they were free from the diseases of the Egyptians, their captors. When they followed God's instructions, they were blessed, and they did not suffer the health problems of those that surrounded them. Studies that on Egyptian mummies confirmed the truthfulness of God's word. When medical researchers evaluated the health practices of the Egyptians, they came to some astounding conclusions on health and disease in the ancient world. One autopsy was performed on the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II, and it showed almost completely clogged arteries. In fact, he probably died of a massive heart attack. A British researcher by the name of Dr. Rosalie David from Manchester University in England performed multiple autopsies on Egyptian mummies. And she discovered that the Egyptians were dying of the same diseases that we're dying of today. Westerners. Oh, no, damn, we're advanced. Sure we are. Dr. Claude Rufius did x-rays on 14,000 mummies. And here's what he found. They died of heart disease, cancer, arthritis, obesity, high blood pressure, rheumatism, and sexually transmitted disease. Sound familiar? Why? Because they were not following the Bible's plan of health. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, man, Dan, you've crossed the line now. Coming after my coffee. What about caffeine? Did you know caffeine disrupts the neurotransmitters that keep your brain in balance? Caffeine alters your brain, which is why withdrawing from it is so painful. My friends, you know something is bad for you when giving it up messes you up worse. You don't see people shaking or suffering from a headache because they haven't had their Brussels sprouts or broccoli in the last six hours. When getting off something disturbs you this much, you got to know that it had been better to not be on it in the first place. Amen? My friends, I had a terrible... Caffeine addiction. He said, oh man, coffee. I've had one cup of coffee in my entire life. That's true. But man, could I drink the caffeine pop. Drank it like, they should just put it in IVs. That's how much I drank it. When I tried to quit, I thought I was going to die. Somebody was beating me on the head with a sledgehammer. It actually took an injury, (laughs) another injury, while playing hockey, to have pain medication to get off the caffeine. Think about that. I had to have pain medication to to endure the pain of getting off something that we think is good for us. My friends, caffeine leads to all sorts of disorders from infertility, restless leg syndrome, bladder cancer, depression. Listen to the medical experts. 
Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Caffeine is the most widely used mind-altering drug. We said, no, 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 it's crack, meth. No, no, it's, it's caffeine. Duke University. What we have found is that caffeine interacts with stress and intensifies it. And I'm all wired up and I'm, I'm going a mile a minute. I need a cup of coffee. The experts say it's the worst thing you can do under stress. It actually makes it worse. Yet, caffeine is the drug of choice for 9 out of 10 Americans. Now, my friends, we know, as Christians, we shouldn't be addicted to drugs, amen? Jesus himself gave us this example. When he was on the cross, he was offered a drink that would numb the pain, and he refused. He refused because it would dull his senses and he wanted his mind to be sharp while he went through this persecution. So he didn't waver. Revelation tells us that God's name or God's character is going to be put in the minds of believers in the end of time. My friends, we can't hope to have the mind of Jesus if we're developing a mind like that of Phineas Gage with no frontal lobe. I want to remind you that when you got hooked on alcohol or when tobacco was leading you to the early grave or nicotine has a hold on you, there is someone in heaven right now who is able to give you grace, give you peace, but most of all give you strength and power and victory. And his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? The Bible makes it clear. If you come to Jesus right now, and you find mercy, and you find grace in your time of need, Jesus is more powerful than any addiction. Now, wait a minute, Dan. You just preached yesterday about the freedoms of America. Right? We love our freedoms, don't we? Get from God. So I can do anything I want with my body. You sure can. You can. You have free will. We've talked about that a lot too, haven't we? But should you do everything with your body? Now, it's possible to get sick by environment or genetic causes, amen? We know that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, I read it earlier, it says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do how much? All to the glory of God. All. All. Paul says, every single thing you do, do to the glory of God. Not just on Sabbath. Not just while you're in church. Not just when people are watching. He says, everything you do. And yet, we continue to kill ourselves with what are preventable illnesses. My friends, we're digging our graves with our teeth. Are we really glorifying God when we're destroying the very high point of his creation? Make no bones about it, my friends. We are the high point of the creation. Everybody say, well, wait a minute. Eden was perfect, Dan. Eden was 
glorious. And I can take you to places on this earth that are amazingly beautiful. And I can. And you can take me, right? But none of those were made in the likeness of who? God. Except us. The pinnacle of his creation. Are we glorifying God by destroying that? My friends, it's not possible to glorify God when you're doing that. What about food? What about diet? Does the Bible offer any help in choosing the best diet? Absolutely. In fact, let's talk about some Bible principles when it comes to diet. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth. And every tree whose fruit yields seed, to it it shall be for food. You see, when God created the human race, he gave them a magnificent diet of fruits, nuts, and grains. Before sin entered this world, humans and animals were vegetarians. You see, man's original diet was made up of fruits and seeds and nuts. Basically, man ate the food above the ground, animals ate the food on the ground. That's a simple way of summarizing it. See, the Eden diet was a vegetarian diet. God did not give Adam and Eve flesh food to eat in the garden. Amen? Adam didn't go out and kill animals for lunch in the garden. It was God's desire that Adam and Eve would live long and abundant lives on the original diet given to them in Genesis. You see, some, some people will ask, well, Dan, if you want the best diet, what is it? My friends, even science reveals that it's a vegetarian diet. Now, the Bible doesn't teach it's a sin to eat meat. Absolutely not. But the Bible is clear that the ideal diet, God's best plan, was a vegetarian diet. That's what he provided us in our perfect state. There, there was a naval study. Some of you may have heard of this. They did a study to find out what happens if Navy pilots got shot down and got stranded. What should they eat? So they could teach them what to eat. They spent millions of dollars of our tax money. And you know what the conclusion was? Follow the Bible diet. That's true. Google that. The Bible diet. I could have saved them millions of dollars. I only took half of it. I had to give them a Bible. Amen? Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So sin comes into the world. Now we have a post-fall diet, diet. And what we see now is it's closely tied to the same diet as the animals. Remember, they were eating the food on the ground. So now man's diet is tied closer to the animals. But after sin, humans are still vegetarians in the Bible. Man's diet now consists not only of the fruit of the plants, but also the plants themselves. Turn to Genesis chapter 5. 
Genesis chapter 5, verse 27. How many have heard of Methuselah? Amen. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. 969 years. Almost 1,000 years. My friends, it wasn't until after the flood in Noah's day that God gave people permission to eat flesh food. Why? It should be obvious. After the flood, how much vegetation was left? None. It had to grow back. But flesh food was not the original diet that God had given man. We read in the Bible that the lifespan of man decreased rapidly from over 900 years before the flood to around 140 years just a few generations after the flood. The lifespan all of a sudden shortens. Today we'd be like 140 years, that's amazing. That was a huge reduction. God instructed Noah before the flood to bring both clean and unclean animals into the ark. How many animals, how many of each animal did Noah bring into the ark? How many, who knows? Not you. Anybody? Come on, you saw the cartoons, two by two, right? What's the Bible say? Turn to Genesis chapter 7. This is always a trick question. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you, how many? Seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female. Two each of the animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Now I want you to focus on this clean and unclean situation. Because many people today will tell you when you start talking about clean and unclean meat, they're going to say, oh, that's for the Jews. That's a Jewish thing. How many Jews on the planet before the flood? Zero. Is this a Jewish instruction? There was no Jews. Here we have Noah being instructed in the handling of clean and unclean animals. In fact... There's no explanation to, to Noah. Okay, Noah, this is, this is what you got to, well, these animals and are seven and these, no, God didn't do that. He just said, take seven of the clean, two. Noah knew. He knew. He knew the distinction already and there were no Jews. God said there's two types of animals, clean and unclean. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they had a vegetarian diet. At the time of the flood, God allowed the eating of meat. He made a distinction, though, between clean and unclean. And the unclean were to never be eaten. After the flood, as I said, the vegetation had been destroyed, and God instructed Noah to take the clean animals into the ark by sevens, and the unclean by twos, because those weren't fit for food. But some of them were scavengers that the Lord had created as the cleanup crew for the world. It was only after the flood that God gave human beings permission to eat meat. But meat eaters who want 
to pursue a healthier lifestyle will begin by following the biblical model of eating clean meat. But what are clean meat? Again, we look to our Bibles, amen? In fact, the Bible has very specific instructions for us to know the difference. Major portions of two entire chapters, Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, are devoted to this instruction. So you ask, okay, Dan, which animals are clean? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Page 180. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 6. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hooves split into two parts, and that choose the cud among the animals. So an animal must have two characteristics to be clean, according to God. It has to have a split hoof, like a cow, and it also has to chew its cud. Notice the Bible said, and. What does chewing the cud mean? That sounds a little disgusting, doesn't it? It means that an animal chews its food, swallows it, then brings it back up and chews it again. Now, there's a reason for this, not only because of its digestive system, but it also helps so that the poisons and the toxins that they're, of the things they're eating isn't getting absorbed into the flesh so easily. Now, some of the examples of clean animals, according to the Bible, are the cow, the sheep, the goat, deer, not the one that you got named, Larry. But what animals are unclean? What animals should we avoid according to the Bible? Moses continues in Deuteronomy chapter 14. says, nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these. He's saying if they only have one or the other, don't eat them. Continues the camel, the hare, the rock hyrax. For they chew the cud but not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. The camel. The Bible says don't eat camel. It chews its cud, but it doesn't have split hooves. Rabbit. Says, they chew the cud, but they don't have cloven hooves. Unclean. The Bible continues. Also, the swine is unclean for you because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. Moses continues, you shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. It goes a little bit further than not eating it, doesn't it? Don't even touch them. Now, occasionally we'll see stories in the news about people who have gotten ill from eating infected pork. There was a lady in Arizona once who doctors told her you had a brain tumor, which actually later during surgery turned out that it was a worm that had gotten into her brain by eating pork. You said, well, that's easy for you to say, Dan. I'm telling you right now, I grew up in a family that loves pork. And parts of my family still love pork. My friends... We have come to the point where we think if we can slow something down long enough to stick a fork in it, it's good for food. If it smells good, we eat it. But my friends, that was never God's plan. Pigs. Nobody would ever eat those, right? 
Yeah, it's one of the best-selling meats in the marketplace. But the Bible forbids it because it's a scavenger. Its flesh is unclean food. Those things will eat anything. Okay, some of you say, okay, Dan. But when Jesus died on the cross, everything was okay, right? Now, let me ask you the logic of that. Do you really think Jesus came down from heaven, died, shed his blood on the cross to cleanse pigs? Really? Well, you're laughing, but the fact that I have to speak to this tells you that that's a belief out there. My friends, Jesus died for one reason. It was to cleanse sinners. If the pig was unhealthy before the cross, trust me, it's unhealthy after the cross. In fact, here's a verse you can remember. Psalms chapter 84, page 565. Psalms chapter 84, verse 11. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. My friends, with Jesus, in pure love, would he hold back anything that's good for us? Even one thing? No. Jesus said that he will give us every good thing. He says everything is, every good thing is ours if we lovingly obey him. We must follow the Bible rather than what people tell us. Pork has the highest cholesterol source of all meats. My friends, if pork was good, God would not hold it back from us. But since it's not good, he says, don't eat it. Why? Dr. McNaught, a health researcher, found that one of every four pork specimens had living trichina larvae in it. In fact, if you put an infected piece of pork under a microscope, you will see the trichina larvae. They have millions of eggs. And those eggs can hatch in your stomach. They will invade your muscle tissue. They can cause symptoms like arthritis and rheumatism. Trichina are parasite worms. In fact, trichinosis is breaking out again in the world. So, okay, Dan, but I, I got the cure for this. We'll just cook it really hot. And we're going to kill those little worms. Now, let me ask you this. Does it give you any amount of comfort to know that you're eating dead worms instead of live worms? That's that logic. Many cases of trichinosis break out. They afflict people who thought they cooked their pork sufficiently. My friends, I'd rather follow God. And I know you would too, amen? We can learn to control our appetites. We can eat to live rather than live to eat. The New Testament speaks of those who would destroy themselves through doing things their own way rather than following Jesus' way. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, page 1131, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. Notice Paul is talking about people who are led by their stomachs, by their appetites, not by God. Continues, who set their mind on earthly things. My friends, many Christians do not understand the real issue. They love Jesus, but they haven't seen that by having an attitude that says, I don't care what you say, God. I'm going to eat what I want. They are really in rebellion, and they're in danger. 
Our God is the God of the universe. And he invites us to give him our bodies. He wants us to start living now like we would live in heaven. Who knew that Jesus would have spoken so clearly on health, diet? And my friends, it's not about just Jewish people. Turn to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 15. Verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come with fire, with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh. We're talking about the end of time, amen? And the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination of the Amos shall be consumed together, says the Lord. My friends, the prophet Isaiah is telling us that unclean flesh will still be unclean at the end of the world. And he tells us those who defile themselves will be consumed. What about fish? Back in Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says, These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. According to God, if it has fins and scales, you can eat it. But if it's in the water and does not have fins and scales, like crabs and lobsters and clams, you can't eat it. They're scavengers. You may ask, why did God make these creatures in the first place? Well, my friends, God created an amazing interconnected system. And these bottom-dwelling animals are his cleanup crew. Keeps his waters clean. They are there to clean up the waste that collects at the bottom. And just like pigs, God doesn't want us eating things that are garbage collectors. I have a dear brother who's retired pastor from the Seventh-day Adventist church who grew up in Hawaii, was into diving when he was a young man, and they caught lobsters, all the guy, young guys in high school. He tell, told me a story once. He said, you know where they got the biggest lobsters? At the end of the sewage outflow pipe from the island. And people rush and pay lots of money to eat that. My friends, shellfish are filter feeders. They suck in impure water, and they return it clean into the ecosystem. An oyster can clean 50 gallons of water a day. But the toxins in that water are in that oyster, and they end up on somebody's plate. There are certain things in the water that the Lord does not want us to eat. Notice what the middle three letters of death spell. Eat. Now you're saying, oh, wait a minute, Dan, God has taken away all my fun. So I want think again, my friends. What God does not want to take away is illness. I mean, what God wants to take away is illness. He wants to take away disease. He wants to take away those things so you can hear his voice, so you can tune in to his will. My friends, we are on the edge of a time of trouble like there never was. 
And this is an advantage God offers to his children to deal with those times. Could this be a matter of just putting us back under ceremonial laws? People say, well, you just, you want to go back to being like the Jews. My friends, no. Jesus put an end to that when he went to the cross. Remember that veil was torn in the temple? But there was nothing ceremonial about a pig. There was nothing ceremonial about an oyster. The health blessings weren't ceremonial laws. Leviticus chapter 11 tells us that this is the law of the animals. The King James Version says it's the law of the beasts. God is doing us a huge favor. We benefit from this. Jesus came so we could have life more abundantly. A blessed life. A mind that receives God's message. That feeds on his word. He said, okay, Dan, I got you again. You've been laying in wait out there. What about that vision? People have honest questions, amen? They sincerely wonder about Peter's vision and all those animals. And he saw rats and alligators and snakes and pigs and all kinds of unclean things. And as that sheet descended from heaven, filled with unclean animals, Peter was given some startling instructions. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 13. Page 1062. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And of course, Peter was confused. Did God mean that I needed to eat rats and pigs and crabs and alligators? But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Peter says, no, I don't eat that stuff. Now, some preachers will tell you that this vision meant that God was giving him permission to eat whatever he wanted. But that's not how Peter understood it. He didn't eat. In fact, he refused to eat. It was only when God explained the true meaning of the vision that he understood it. God was telling Peter as a Jewish Christian he should not consider Gentiles to be unclean. He's telling them that they too could be reached with the gospel. In fact, Peter himself explains the meaning of the vision to the rest of the disciples. In Acts chapter 10, verse 28, Peter says, But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. How do we miss that verse? In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. My friends, was this a vision about eating pigs and snakes and alligators and rats? No, it was a vision about racial harmony. It was a vision that God had made one blood of all nations. It was a vision against prejudice between people of different backgrounds. Man can say that this was a vision about clean and unclean food, but God used unclean animals as an illustration that Peter should accept all people through Jesus Christ. My friends, you can say, Jesus, I'm struggling with alcohol. I'm struggling with tobacco. I'm struggling with unclean foods. I'm struggling with drugs. And Jesus will answer. He'll say, I'll give you the power. I'll give you the strength. You'll be victorious. I give you an abundant life. Here's a vital principle as we get ready to close. John chapter 15, verse 5. For without me, you can do nothing. Friends, without Christ, you can't quit smoking. 
Without Christ, you can't give up alcohol. Without Christ, you can't give up unclean foods. Without Christ, you cannot give up the lust which rages in your heart and destroys relationships. Here they are. Without Christ, you can do nothing. With Christ, all things are possible. All things. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Apostle Paul says, you can do anything. It doesn't say, I can do anything except quit smoking. It doesn't say, I can do all things through Christ except give up drugs, except alcohol. I can't quit eating pig. It doesn't say that. It says all things. Jesus says right now, come to me. Put your tobacco on my altar. Put your alcohol on the altar. If you're in a destructive relationship, put your life on my altar. If you're abusing your body with drugs, put that on the altar. If you're overeating, if you can't control your appetite, put it on the altar. Lovingly, Jesus reminds us, I have worked many miracles. I have delivered people who were blind. I've delivered people who were crippled. And when you surrender all, I'll work miracles in your life. It's a promise. My friends, God has given us many gifts, many blessings. His gifts include our bodies. I know many people have a hard time grasping this concept because they think, well, my body's mine. I can do whatever I want. I should have the freedom to do whatever I please. And my friends, you do have that freedom. The secular world has enshrined this concept under the guise of freedom and liberty. But friends, true freedom is only found in the loving arms of the Lord. But those loving arms require something. So oh, here it is. They require submission. They require surrender. Of these many gifts he offers, the greatest gift is life itself. But with that gift comes responsibility. The Lord has appointed us as stewards not just over the environment that we like to hear about every day. He's appointed as stewards over our lives. He expects us to treat his temple with care and reverence. Instead of treating our bodies like playgrounds, rife with desecration, we must tenderly care for God's temple. We must reward the great trust he has placed in us. You see, God is gathering a group of people that he will have to preserve as a testimony for the whole world that his way of life is best. I'm going to ask you tonight, Lord, if this is your will, if it's your will to follow God, I ask you to stand with me tonight and say, God, I want to give you my life. I want to give you everything. I want to turn over all of the problems that I have in my life, all of the challenges. I want to surrender these things that are not good for me. If that's your will, please pray with me. Dear glorious Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your love and mercy and your grace. And Lord, we thank you for these glorious bodies that you've given us as a gift and the free will to do as we please. But Lord, we thank you for these truths and these instructions and these expectations. And we also thank you for your patience and your long-suffering as we've wandered off from your expectations. There's times in our lives we have not glorified you. We have not lived in the center of your will. And Lord, we just ask you to please 
Forgive us. Continue to plead with us, contend with us. Send your Holy Spirit to draw us unto you, to bring us back into harmony. Not just because it's the right thing to do, Lord, because it's the only thing to do. Lord, I know you will have a people at the end, and it's my deepest prayer that it's all these people in this room, all of our friends and family, our brothers and sisters. And Lord, I just ask you to please continue to reach into their hearts, continue to draw them unto your goodness. Lead us unto the path to follow your expectations, not just because of their requirements, but because they are the right and best thing for us. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for keeping us safe. I ask you to please bring us back again this Sabbath to fellowship with our brothers and sisters, but most of all, to worship you. Lord, we ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen.